Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. On today's episode, we're going to be having Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is the president and Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Kruger is one of the leading scholars in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon. He's the author of 11 books, including the Heresy of Orthodoxy, and Canon Revisited. So without any further ado, we want to welcome Dr. Michael J. Kruger to the Good Fight Radio Show. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Look forward to uh, having this conversation. Well, praise the Lord. I, I am really, really excited about this because I had read the Heresy of Orthodoxy as well as Canon Revisited. This idea of the covenantal nature of both the Old and the New Testament. You show some of the parallels at the, at the time of the Deuteronomical text, the text, at least the, the the Pentateuch, the first five books, and specifically, you talk about how there's blessings and curses, and you parallel also the same thing in the book of Revelation as well. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this, this idea that these documents that we have, when we look at the Old and New Testament, or Old and New Covenant, that they're, they're covenantal in nature, it seems. Yeah, um, I think this is an overlooked fact. I talk about this in a number of different places. Um, you know, what we, what we forget because of our English Bibles, we call these testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. But the, but the word behind that, um, testamentum in the Latin, which comes from diatheke in the Greek, is really the word covenant. We're talking about an old covenant and a new covenant. And I argue, of course, and I don't think this is a, a, a difficult case to make, that the, the whole existence of a new covenant is born out of the pre-existence of an old covenant. In other words, the, the whole idea of covenant documents would have been in the water, so to speak, for the earliest Christians because they were Jews, and they were used to having books that were considered covenantal documents. Um, and we call something a covenantal document. What we mean is that it's a document that testifies to God's relationship, his arrangement, his treaty, if you will, with his people, and they would have known this through the old covenant. Now, here's what's interesting, and I point this out in my book, is that in the ancient world, if you said that you had a covenant, it was actually a physical object. Um, covenants weren't just ideas or pie-in-the-sky concepts. To say you have a covenant is to say you had a written text, a, 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 a written document at some level um, that testifies to the terms of the arrangement. It was like a, like a treaty text. We know this from the, 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 the function of A&E treaties in, in Hittite worlds and beyond. Um, and we know that that's certainly what was true in the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai. When God made a covenant with, with Israel at Mount Sinai, he wrote it in stone. He wrote it down. It was a physical text. So I make the argument then that if you were to tell somebody that we have a new covenant, um, and uh, this, of course, is the language Jesus used himself, that he inaugurates a new covenant, what would they have expected there to be? And the answer is they would have expected there to be a new deposit of written text. So if God's going to start a new covenant, they would expect him to give new covenant documents. And so I argue, I argue that for one simple reason. It shows you that the idea of a New Testament is not foreign to the early Christian movement. It's not something that had to be imposed on it. It's not something that's, that no one had really thought of. It's something that would have, again, grown up organically and naturally from 
from within. And I think there's signs in the New Covenant writings that show this, and you mentioned one of them. Even, we even have the covenantal curse at the very end of Revelation, which is neither add or take away from these writings, which is exactly the same kind of language we have uh, in the Pentateuch. And so that kind of thing, and there's other things, shows I think you're dealing with, with more written documents testifying to the terms of the New Covenant. Yes, we are talking with Dr. Michael J. Kruger, the author of The Heresy of Orthodoxy, as well as Canon Revisited and a number of other books. And we're so excited to have him here today. And I thought it'd be nice to just transition a little bit over the next, you know, 25, the last 25 minutes of our show today and just go through maybe some common arguments that you might hear. And one of the great things is he'll be giving you these, but I'm telling you right now, if you're someone who is just trying to learn how to share this and articulate it on the streets, these books will benefit you. And I would encourage you to get both of these right here. And also, if you're a pastor, if you're a teacher of any kind, if you're sharing and discipling young men and women, these are things that you really need to know about. And even though he'll be giving you great answers here, when you want to have a full scope and understanding of the material, I do really, really, really highly recommend both of these works. These need to be on your shelves and being opened and referenced because I think they do they do an excellent job with understanding the canon of Scripture, with understanding why we know what we know in terms of the books that we have. And so I want to go through some of the arguments, one of which, though the first one I'll give you, is the last argument that I got when I was just out on the street sharing the gospel with a Catholic. And one of the things that they brought up concerning the doctrine, they asked me if I believed in Sola Scriptura, and of course uh, I do. And so they asked me, you know, uh, this question, and one of the things that they said specifically was that the Holy Catholic Church is what gave you the table of contents in your Bible. You wouldn't even know what to read. So, Dr. Kruger, how would you respond to someone who would say that to you? Yeah, this is a common Catholic argument. Obviously, Protestants and Catholics have been debating this issue for, you know, a long, long time, 500 years or more. Um, and so we've got a disagreement here about the way we know which books are from God. Catholics would say that the only way you can know which books are from God is from the Church telling you. Um, and Protestants say, no, you can, you can know from the books themselves. Now, there's several ways to respond to this uh, uh, particular argument. One one general observation, just as, as as I think about it, is you know if someone says you can only know that these books are from God from the from from the from the the church itself, I want to know well how do you know that? How do you know you can only know from the church itself? Um, certainly, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that um, because there's nothing in the Bible I'd argue that would suggest an infallible church in the first place. Now, if you say well we know that the, the church is the only place to know because the church told us. Well, now we're back to that again, which is the very thing most Roman Catholics say you can't do, which is have a self-authenticating authority. And this, of course, exposes the real problem here with the argument. They, they say, look, you Protestants would be fine if you had an, an authorized table of content, contents. You don't, so therefore we need the Church to tell you. But I always respond by saying, well, what if the Protestants did? Let's imagine we uncovered a document in the Sands of Egypt that gave us the authorized table of contents. Would that, would that make you satisfied? And the answer, of course, is no, because that document has to be authenticated. And who's supposed to authenticate it? Well, Mother Church. So what you realize is that it, having an authoritative table of contents wouldn't actually solve the problem. For them, you always have to have, ultimately, the Church built into the equation. So what that just shows you is the argument just presupposes the very thing they're trying to prove. It doesn't actually show you the Church is the only authority. It just presupposes that, and then says, therefore, you can't have uh, the Bible in front of you. We would say, on the contrary, we think you can establish which books belong in the Bible through all kinds of other means. 
Um, and I've already laid those out earlier in this conversation. And what you don't need is a, is an infallible church. Yeah, amen. No, that's that's excellent. And, and one of the things you, you might hear, even as a follow-up sometimes and, and on the streets, is specifically the idea that what if, you know, we're out dig, digging and we're not in Oxyrhynchus, right? <laughs> that's a fun word to say. Uh, we're not out in Oxyrhynchus, but we're out digging. And next thing you know, we have discovered we have discovered this new letter from Paul. We know it's from Paul, without a doubt. So this has to be a part of Scripture. Would it be a part of the canon, uh, Dr. Kruger? Yeah, well, I get asked this question all the time. This may be the number one ranked question I get. You know, what if we found a lost letter of Paul? Uh, and I, I got to admit, I, I go back and forth on it um, in terms of what I would, would say the category is. Um, on one level, I think canon is a foundational uh, document. And uh, obviously, if you found this book in 2021, that it did not function as a foundational document for early Christianity, and therefore it would not be canon. On the flip side, um, if, it is, if it is a genuine inspired epistle of Paul, well, why not? Why would you not put it uh, along with the other books? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a curious question. I think it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a, 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 a question that's so hypothetical that you, you wonder, regardless of which way you, you, you answer it, it doesn't change a lot in terms of our understanding of canon, nor does it change a lot in terms of our, of course, day-to-day thinking. But yet, it, it is curious to ponder, and uh, I doubt very much, though, whether that, that'll ever become a reality. Um, but uh, you never know what the sands of Egypt will turn up. <laughs> yeah, that that's right. And so, you know, we get these questions, and we're talking with Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who has authored 11 books. He's done a great job in answering a lot of these questions that for a lot of people are difficult. And as you can hear him speaking, and I love the fact that he speaks very matter-of-factly about these things because he does give you the arguments and it tells you what other people leave. But one of the things is I, I love the confidence that he has in expressing this. And once again, the common sense nature of hearing these arguments. And, I, and I'm really hoping you guys are, are blessed by this. And I hope what this will do will get you to want to get these materials to grow even more concerning these questions, because these are really, really important, and these are things that you're going to hear on the streets. And one of the ones that we hear all the time, and I and I find this, you know, I almost feel embarrassed asking the question, but if you are on the streets, and if you ever share the gospel with a Muslim, if you ever share the gospel with an atheist and so forth, there is this dark, ominous idea that everything was discovered, or not, or everything was decided, actually, at the Council of Nicaea. Now, I don't know if that's uh, because of the Da Vinci Code specifically in this day and age or not. But basically, the Council of Nicaea, for some, they believe, that really decided what the books were. They decided that Jesus was God there, I guess. And also, they threw out other books, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter. So what would you say to someone that was telling you, yeah, you know what, I know that whole Bible was actually decided, and all these other ones were thrown out at the Council of Nicaea? Yeah, this is a common argument. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Um, it. It was not invented by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. It was picked up by him from a number of other sources, who knows where. I mean, it's all over the Internet, and it's in a number of different places. And occasionally I even hear a scholar say it, even though there's no historical reason to think that the Council of Nicaea had anything to do with the New Testament canon. So, you know, sometimes things get passed around in, in common popular stories and lore, so to speak, and it gets repeated so often people think it's true. Um, but uh, in this case, it's decidedly not true. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament canon. 
Um, and for that matter, I'll add this, the Council of Nicaea was not about deciding the divinity of Jesus, despite the common perception that's what it was about. The Council of Nicaea was about the best way to articulate uh, the divinity of Jesus uh, over and against the various controversies of the day, um, uh, including you know, the controversy over Arius' own views. So uh, again, it's not as if in the fourth century the divinity of Jesus was a toss-up, and they were like, well, we got a 50-50 church here, we got to pick something, uh, pick one route to go. Uh, usually when you talk about Nicaea too, Constantine is thrown in, you know, as the, you know, emperor who's pulling the strings behind the scenes. And, on, and, and, and you can see in this whole narrative, it's a bit of what I was saying earlier in the conversation, is that lurking behind this whole narrative is this idea that these things were all the product of human machinations, um, the product of politics, the product of the accident of history, and therefore we can sort of just relieve ourselves of any concern whether these books are, 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 are valuable or not, because it's all just the part of, a, you know, human plots. And I think, you know, it's a bit conspiracy theory, honestly. Um, but, uh, you know, if someone wants to find a reason to dismiss the, the, the New Testament, I'm, I suppose you could use that reason. The problem is it just isn't historically true. And so if someone cares about what's historically true, that's not how the canon came to be. And you can't, you know, just brush it aside under the heading of it was decided at Nicaea. Amen to that. And, you know, one of the things that gets brought up a lot, and I know I'm sure it's been brought up to you plenty of times, uh, once again, and you go over this quite well, obviously, in the Heresy of Orthodoxy, specifically about these other Gospels, as if there were these other Gospels there at the time of, you know, say the Gospel of John and, and, you know, the four canonical Gospels, that we, we look at these Gospels and say, well, you know what, they threw out these other ones specifically, for what reason did, would they throw out something like Thomas, right? If they were just sitting there with these, with all these Gospels, maybe even the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, and so forth, they're sitting there with these Gospels, why why keep the four canonical and throw out those if they were all sitting there at the same time together? Yeah, well, of course, that's the whole problem, isn't it? Is they weren't sitting there at the same time together, whatever one, one might mean by that. Um, yeah, the apocryphal gospel fascination is remarkable to watch. Uh, we, we have a culture that just can't get enough of lost gospels or hidden gospels or apocryphal gospels. And again, there's a conspiracy theory sort of feel to it all, which is that, you know, after 2000 years, we finally now know the real truth and everything's been suppressed and, and we finally figured it out. It has a bit of an area 51 kind of, uh, sense about it. Um, but, you know, the truth is usually a lot less sensationalistic than, than, the, than, than those sorts of retellings. I mean, the truth is actually rather mundane, and the truth is simply this, is that we only have four Gospels written in the first century uh, that we possess anyway. Um, and in other words, we only have four Gospels that were written in the, in the century in which Christ lived, and that's the Gospels we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Therefore, those are the only four Gospels that actually have a shot at having an apostolic link, an apostolic connection. Every other gospel, and your listeners need to let this sit, sort of sink in, every other gospel that we possess uh, can be reliably dated to the second century or even later. And that includes the famous gospel of Thomas and gospel of Peter and the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Philip and the gospel of the Twelve, the gospel of Judas, and you could go on and on and on. The point is, is that every single apocryphal gospel, no matter what name's attached to it, has no apostolic link. Uh, because we know they're written in the second century or later. So just that fact alone shows you that there is something different about our canonical Gospels. Now, that doesn't prove they're true. I suppose the skeptic could say, okay, even, even first century Gospels can be false, and, and, they, and they're right. That doesn't prove it's true. But what it does show you is that if you're going to pick Gospels out of the pile, so to speak, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make a lot more sense than Thomas, Philip, and, and Mary. Um, because theoretically, you'd want a gospel as, as early as possible, but you'd also theoretically want a gospel that could at least purportedly go back to the earliest followers of Jesus. And you only get that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the rather mundane conclusion of all that is that the Gospels we have actually make a lot of sense. If you're going to pick Gospels, I, t- I tell people this all the time, if you're going to pick Gospels, which ones would you choose? Um, and, and I think they would have to admit that, yeah, I mean, if, I, if, I, if this is the pile I'm looking at, those would be the four I would pick. And I think historically those are the four that Christians settled on very early. Yeah, I was going to say that with when it comes to the early Christians, uh, you know, the Irenaeuses and, and, and so forth, were, were they— were they someone who, who said, hey, maybe these Gospels as well, or, or did they stick to the four? Well, this is the other remarkable part of the equation, is that um, when we look in the early Christian movement, there wasn't nearly the debate over the Gospels that people think there, there, there would be. Um, if it was a sort of literary free-for-all, and no one knew what to read, and there were all these different Gospels, and people couldn't make their minds up, you'd think the early Church Fathers would be kind of all over the map in terms of which Gospels to read. But as soon as they start talking about Gospels and which one the Church receives, it's interesting. They coalesce around Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John remarkably early. In fact, I would argue there really wasn't any meaningful debate about the Gospels. These four seem to be there almost from the very beginning. Um, and our second-century sources bear this out. You mentioned Irenaeus. He has four and only four. In fact, famously says so. The earliest canonical list, the Mertorian Fragment, is in the second century. And it's got four and only four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Clement of Alexandria, also in the second century, same thing, four and only four, and on and on you could go. And so this idea that there was this great amount of diversity of choice with Gospels simply isn't true. Now, that doesn't mean that these other Gospels weren't known. They were. It doesn't even mean they weren't used or read, because they were. Clement of Alexandria is a good example of this. He used occasionally uh, Gospels outside our canon, and he got what he deemed to be useful information from them and found them profitable from time to time. But he also was very careful to make a distinction between those other Gospels and the four he regarded as Scripture. Um, the four he regarded as Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were in a, in a, in a distinctive category uh, for him. Wow. And and I think that's—you have, you know, the, the testimony there, I think, is so huge. And so I wanted to switch up. we got it, you know, a little bit of time left. But I, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about something that, that has been common. And it's one of those things, like I said, when something is popularized in this manner, specifically Dr. Bart Ehrman, and I believe you even uh, were under him at some point, right, at, uh, at UNC? Is that right? I was a student at UNC Chapel Hill when he was just starting out, and I uh, had him for introduction to the New Testament class. Okay. Um, and it was uh, a, a, a very influential class on me just because, you know, I was a freshman student and, and was being bombarded with all kinds of questions I couldn't answer. Um, and that actually uh, is the class that put me on the trajectory of scholarship I'm on today. So, <laughs> so yeah, that was a, a me- meaningful part of my own academic journey, so to speak. Well, that's great. And, and I know you just recently uh, wrote a book as well, specifically about people not losing their faith when they go to college. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, your listeners may want to know that my, my uh, next book is due out April 6th with Crossway called Surviving Religion 101. And uh, it's about uh, helping college students uh, interact with the intellectual challenges they'll face in college, particularly at secular universities. And yeah, I was born out of my own experience, uh, having had Bart Ehrman as a professor but also just my uh, awareness of story after story of folks going off to college and, and looking for answers to the questions they have. So um, I hope it's helpful for people, and it should be available soon. Awesome. That sounds great. And you, and you can get all 
all of his books at michaeljkruger.com. And you can also check out uh, Canon Fodder, which is your blog there as well. And and excellent stuff on there. I've been reading that for the last six or seven months, and it has just been such ben- so beneficial to me. So I, I wanted to get into one of the arguments that Bart Ehrman makes. I've heard this on debates, and it sounds really good. I mean, from his side uh, of view, I, I guess his point of view, when he says things like there are more textual variants in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Should this cause us concern? And what do we do if this is true? And is it true? Yeah, it's a common argument that Ehrman makes. Um, He made it originally back in his, uh, famously at least, back in his book, Misquoting Jesus, um, which was a New York Times bestseller. But he's made it in many lectures and other places as well. Um, and, and really, we're, we're now on to a, a corollary issue that's, that's a little bit distinctive from canon, because canon is an issue of which books, and now, with that argument from Ehrman, is, there's a secondary question here, which is also important, which is not just b- which books, but which text. In other words, even if you have the right book, let's, let's say everyone agrees that Mark should be in our, our canon, even if you have the right book, there's the second question, and that is, do we have Mark? In other words, is the thing we're calling Mark the thing that Mark himself wrote? Or is the thing we're calling Mark the product of thousands of years of scribal changes so that what we have now isn't anything like it was then? Well, this essentially is the argument that Ehrman's making, which is that in the New Testament, not just Mark, by the way, but many other books in our New Testament, have so many scribal variations that how could you ever believe that what you have are the words of the original authors? And he'll make statements dramatically like, well, there's more words uh, or more textual variants than there are words in the New Testament. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of things about that stat that's really unfortunate, and I think stats are tricky things, right, because you know they, they can be very illuminating and they can be also very misleading. And I would say this stat is extremely misleading. Um, there's two things about that stat I'll mention that I think take the air out of it pretty quickly. The first is the, is the most important fact, and that is the only reason we have this many variants that we know about is because we have thousands of copies of our New Testament. In fact, thousands more copies than any other book in the ancient world. Uh, so right now we have probably somewhere near 5,700 copies uh, of our uh, New Testament writings. Copy is anything from a fragment, with a little bitty tiny piece, all the way up to a complete New Testament. Um, and we have, like I said, thousands and thousands of these, more than any book that we know of in the ancient world from that time period. Um, and what's curious about this is that every new manuscript you discover, you, you learn about more scribal mistakes. Um, yes, scribes made mistakes. They were human beings. And if you copied a book, you'd make a mistake too, which is part of the way the world works. Back in that day, every, every book had to be copied by hand. And so the first thing that's wrong with that statistical argument then is that the only reason we know about these variants is because we have so many copies. It doesn't mean that, that the scribal tradition was unreliable. It just means that every new copy you have, the more variants you can add to the mix. So I often tell my students, what if I only had five copies of the New Testament? How many variants would I have then? Well, not anything remotely close to the number Herman's talking about. So it just tells you that that's misleading. The second thing I would say in terms of response to this is that you can't just talk about the number of, of, of variations. You have to talk about the kind of variations. And it's very uh, tricky to say this because it looks like every variation is the same and it's all over the map, but that's not true. Most variations we have are fairly mundane and ordinary and, and irrelevant to the meaning of the text. And the good example of this is the vast majority of variations are spelling errors, which don't really change anything meaningful in the text uh, most of the time. And so you, what you have here is something that vast, vast majority of these changes are, are not meaningful to, to, to the, to the, to the uh, understanding of what the text says. Now, there's more that can be said besides that, but those are two, 
uh, things that we would say in response. And I think once you realize that, then the whole argument really loses its steam. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things I remember he was in a debate and it was brought up to him that, you know, when it comes to these these variants and so forth, that, the, you know, the Muslim will come to you and say, you know, our third caliph, you know, Uthman, he was able to pretty much give us one text. So we have one text of the Quran, even though that has been proven to be false as well. And therefore, they can have certainty, you know, in terms of what was written. And so, I, as you mentioned, the five books, would you really want that? <laughs> Rather. But, uh, you know, we have about five minutes left. So what I, what I would love to, to ask you to do, Dr. Kruger, and, and yes, we are speaking with Dr. Michael J. Kruger, the author of not only The Heresy of Orthodoxy, not only Canon Revisited, but a number of other books, nine other books as well. And we, we want to encourage you guys to go check out michaeljkruger.com. And he has a ton of stuff on there, specifically his blog, Canon Fodder. That's one N. Please spell that correctly if you're coming from our Good Fight website over to there. <laughs> but um, go check him out because these are these are great answers to questions. And like I said, we, we've gone all over the map already on this, on this show talking about what a Catholic might say to you or talking about, hey, what about your kid out uh, there? You know, they're taking their first philosophy of religion course or something. What, a, you know, what about if you're talking to a Muslim on the street? All of these things are quite common. So it's not something that we want to, uh, you know, we'll just hide that over on the side and, and nobody will ask that question. These are these are really, really important questions. So I guess, Dr. Kruger, the last question that I would love to get from you is to simply, if I was coming to you and asking you to give us the best evidences that what I have is the Word of God. What is the best succinct way that you could give that answer to me? Well, you know, uh, if someone says, look, I really want to believe that the books I have in my Bible come from God, how can I know that they do? I mean, one, one simple answer, and I think it's historically and factually true, and I think is a good answer, which is, well, for 2,000 years, Christians all over the world, led by the Holy Spirit, have settled on exactly these 27 books. Now, that argument should hold weight, um, yeah. not because the Church is infallible, um, but because we believe that God's Spirit is at work and that the Church reliably responds and reacts to what's already there, what's already true. Jesus made this plain himself. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, then we would have confidence that collectively, corporately, that we could have assurance that uh, God's been at work in His Church and that these books um, are, in fact, uh, the right ones. Now, when when people think about what they mean by certainty, you know, you always have to qualify this. There's there's certain levels of epistemic certainty people demand of arguments that I think are unreasonable, and they don't ever demand of anything else in their life. Um, and so, you know, we make we make arguments um, that we think are cogent and and, and reasonable and and and, and work. Um, but someone might have such a standard that unless God writes in the sky all 27 books of the New Testament in the clouds, they won't believe it. And I'm like, well, okay, if you're demanding this kind of miraculous revelation to believe in these books are the right ones, then then I might not be able to help you. Uh, But if you uh, are looking to to hear the kind of arguments that that God's own Word makes um, and the kind of arguments that Christians have used for thousands of years, then I think you have good grounds to stand on when you trust these 27 books. Amen. And we want to thank Dr. Michael J. Kruger for joining us on the Good Fight Radio Show. I am just so excited for you guys to 
be able to not only dig into what has been said here, hopefully replay this, listen to it again, but also dig into the books that he offers. And also you can go on to his website, michaeljkruger.com, and check out everything he has on there, including his release uh, on April 6th of his of his latest book. So once again, I just want to thank you, Dr. Kruger. You've been a blessing to us. Thanks so much. Good to chat with you guys. God bless. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.